All right, while you're, we're waiting for them, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. We have read some of it and sung some of it and prayed some of it uh, already today. Uh, if you're not sure where that is, open your Bible right in the middle. It's one of the big books, and you'll probably go to your right. And you'll find Isaiah chapter 40. It is a long chapter, so I'm not going to read the whole thing right now in interest of time, but we will read the whole thing as we go through it. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as we start a new year, we need it more than ever. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Once again, we've come to your word, and we find ourselves in a famous passage that Christians have turned to for years in order to find strength for the days ahead. And once again, we thank you for this prophet, this extraordinary word you gave him to preach to those facing exile. Give us hearts and minds to believe and understand all that you have written. Help us to know you better and to love you more through Isaiah 40. And so we pray, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. The plague had come to his city. His infant daughter died within a few short months of her birth. He felt the pain of betrayal. He was still reeling from the throes of a war, with both sides feeling as if he had somehow let them down. He started a movement that was nearly drowning him. And it was one of the most difficult years of his life. The year was 1527, and Martin Luther was wondering if he would survive. In the days that led up to this dark year, Luther had taken to hymn writing. He was a lover of music as well as a lover of theology as well as a lover of beer. Somehow those things all go together. I've got some amens uh, there. But hymns came naturally to him. And so in 1527, he wrote what has become uh, probably the hymn of the Reformation. If not one of the most beloved hymns of all time, then you know it because you just sang it. And in singing it, you sang the words, Did we in our own strength confide? Why in the world would we ever sing such a thing? Luther knew the reality of human limitations. He was highly competent. He's a driven individual, larger-than-life uh, personality. And yet he knew his own limitations. And in 1527, as all the stormy events surrounded him, he knew he needed to look beyond himself, past his own strength, past his own ability. He knew that God alone is our mighty fortress, our bulwark never failing. He knew how futile it would be to trust in his own strength. 
So this month, point of this series for January, which I have entitled with confidence, trusting God in winter. We have these wonderful winter uh, banners there, a little bit larger than our regular banners, only because I ordered the wrong size. Um, But the point of the whole series is captured in this hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, by Martin Luther. The hymn is based on Psalm 46, uh, which we're not talking about today. But that psalm thunders, the God of Jacob is our fortress. That's not an abstract phrase, but it is very nuanced. This is the God of Jacob. Now we know Jacob. We know about Jacob. We know about the shortcomings of Jacob. We also know how much God cared for Jacob. And we know about, when we read about God's tender care of Jacob, this is a God who sees, hears, knows, and cares. It's not some far-off, aloof God who doesn't know what's going on and doesn't care about people. The God who cared for Jacob is our fortress. So this phrase from Psalm 46 prompted Luther to think of all the benefits that belong to us. And he put them in his hymn. What do we have? The spirit and the gifts are ours. Who is on our side? The man of God's own choosing. The Lord and Redeemer is on our side. Christ Jesus, it is he, are the reassuring words that flow from Luther's pen. Christ fights for us against our foes. Should we have confidence in the outcome? Of course, because the answer is clear. He must win the battle. What abides, what lasts, what stays. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. In another hymn, Luther declares, I'll trust in God's unchanging word. It alone stands. God's word abides. Well, how about us? Well, we sing, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. Easier sung than lived. But is it true? There's only one way in which it's still true. It's only true if God is our fortress and if God's truth abideth still. The words of the hymn are not simply hyperbole. Luther meant every word of every line. And the last line of Luther's hymn tells us what ultimately matters most. His kingdom is forever. That's the resounding truth that anchored Martin Luther in the storms of 1517. (coughs) His kingdom is forever. It is God, it is his son, it is his word, it is his spirit, it is his kingdom. That's what matters. 
And here's the truth that abides. His kingdom is forever. That's the truth. The God of Jacob proves himself to be a mighty fortress century after century after century. But what about our lives? What about the storms? What about the battles? I mean, Martin Luther is a mighty fortress is our God is an inspiring hymn. But how does all of that translate in the true storms of life? What do we do about all of our enemies, those who are at the gate ready to bring us down? Well, who are those enemies? We should identify them. <clears throat> From the beginning, the scriptures tell us that they're the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Throughout the centuries, they've taken on the trappings of each individual age, but their nature remains the same. They stand in opposition to God and to his people and to his kingdom. And when we face them, we find we need comfort and hope and power, or we're lost. One of the most comforting texts in the Old Testament is Isaiah 40. It is a text of sheer beauty. From the first verse to the last verse, it's sheer poetry. It is also sheer theology. However, it has no beer. But Isaiah 40 is a fitting text due particularly to the references in it to the nations throughout the chapter. And what are those nations? They are, verse 15, but drops in the bucket. You ever wonder where that phrase comes from? Now you know. Other enemies lurk in these verses. There are idols and false gods, false religions of Israel's day and of Israel's neighbor. There's the mighty forces of nature against which we have to contend. And last, we add in our own frailties and weaknesses and feeble flesh to that list. <coughs> mm. I forgot my tea today. The enemies in this chapter just stack up. And yet God is there at every verse, at every turn. And so there's a lot of lessons for us to learn from Isaiah 40. And the first lesson is that God's glory is our comfort. God's glory is our comfort. Now, if you have the outline, you'll see that's the first blank. Verses 1 through 11 read, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? <clears throat> all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his, arms rules, his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Isaiah 40 is a turning point in the whole book of Isaiah. The previous 39 chapters have largely consisted of one long sermon after another. Sermons of judgment, of mayhem, and destruction. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 39, you're bleak and beaten down. Israel, the nations, all the people on earth have come under the storm cloud of God's judgment. Sin was the seed that had been sown, and the harvest of judgment was coming. You remember Jeremiah? We went through that a few years ago. It's a lot like that. But then we turn to chapter 40. And verse 1, and a remarkable word jumps off the page twice. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Like streams in the desert. All of a sudden, the verses of chapter 40 just flow over us, refreshing and comforting. And at the center of this refreshment and comfort stands one thing. God and his salvation towering over all enemies, over all obstacles, over all hindrances. He is our God and he will deliver us. And in chapter 40, Isaiah is prophesying to God's chosen people who were about to be exiled to a strange land. If you know the history, the northern kingdom of Israel has already been sent off into exile and they essentially disappear from history. And Isaiah is preaching to the southern kingdom of Judah. And he's essentially been saying for 39 chapters, you're next. He's warning them. Their homeland, the promised land, is going to be besieged and lay west. Their holy city, Jerusalem, is going to become a pile of rubble. The temple would be laid out in ruins. And destroyed. Isaiah 39 prophesies the exile. But then Isaiah 40 prophesies Israel's return to the land. And says that God, the good and faithful uh, good shepherd, is going to scoop them up in his, their, his arms. He's going to hold them close and he's going to carry them safely back to their land, back to their home. And this message of comfort is aimed directly at these people who are headed for exile. They haven't even gotten there yet. 
but they're going to get there. In your mind's eye, just try to picture these exiles sitting around a campfire in a foreign land, huddled together, these exiles trying to make sense of what's happened to them. They're God's chosen people. And now they're squarely under the thumb of a foreign ruler. And God has promised to lead them home. How hard would it be to believe that promise? I mean, if you were looking at their circumstances, seeing their situation, would you be quick to believe that promise? Or would you have your doubts? And that's why we need Isaiah 40 for what it teaches us about placing our confidence in God. Isaiah is writing a prophecy intended for a people who are about to be exiled. And it's a prophecy to trust in God's promise to deliver them. And verses 1 through 11 are one long declaration of this glorious promise of redemption. God's going to make a way. Verses 3 and 4 tell us that he's going to straighten paths and remove mountains and fill in the valleys. There'll be no uneven ground, no rough places to keep those exiles from making their way back to the promised land. Far more, all of this serves as a backdrop for the revelation of the glory of God. As verse 5 declares, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh will see it together. The Lord has spoken. Israel is to be a prophetic voice to the nations declaring the glory of God. And then in verse 9, the prophet is to get up on a high mountain and herald. It's not a word we use much anymore. What do heralds do? Well, they herald. It means to preach and proclaim. It is one of the primary words in the Bible for preaching. This particular herald is given a particular task to proclaim the good news of God's redemption and deliverance. He's to point to the cities of Judah, and once he has their attention, he's to lift their eyes off of the temporary and onto the transcendent. This herald is to point people to God. Behold your God, declares the prophet. Behold's the right word. It's another word we don't use very much anymore. We tend to use the word uh, behold very sparingly. It's a word reserved for something or someone really impressive. It's not just a mere look. This is not a sly glance. Behold means to really see, to look both intently and intensely. So the prophet says, behold your God. And we're to look at our impressive God. So what do we see as we look intently and intensely? Well, in chapters 1 through 39, we saw this whirlwind of judgment, thunderbolts clapping, lightning flashing, and that's the God we behold. But now consider this picture from verses 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arms rules for him, Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So you still have this picture of this mighty, powerful God. And then he says, 
He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. It's a picture of tenderness, of the mighty God stooping low to gather us into his arms, <coughs> to lift us up, to hold us close, to carry us all the way through his perfect plan of redemption. We see here a picture of the tender mercies of our God. Consider, though, uh, for just a moment, the perspective of these exiles who are being reminded of this. <coughs> They're now sitting around campfires in Babylon. They're longing for this deliverance. And they're told to behold your God. And all they can see is Babylon. They look up and there's Nebuchadnezzar. And all they see are obstacles. Defeated people have difficulty seeing past the defeat. It was true then, it's true now. How hard would it be to see God's promise when you're surrounded by an ever-present army? How hard would it be to accept that this mighty king in front of you is not in control, but that God is, all appearances to the contrary? If we were in exile, far from home, would we have our doubts? Would we have full confidence in what God promises in these verses? I suspect that if we were honest in those quiet moments, those promises of redemption and deliverance and comfort would be met not with confidence, but with doubt. Let's be realistic, you'd say. I mean, why get our hopes up when it's probably not going to happen? And what follows in Isaiah 40 is to answer the doubts and crush the suspicion and the rest of these verses, Isaiah launches into a series of demonstrations of God's power to bring his promise to fulfillment. He wants us to know that God's power is our hope. God's power is our hope. Starting at verse 12. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlines, coastlands like a fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. 
Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, he who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong, in power, not one is missing. God declares his power to deliver in verses 1 through 11, and now God demonstrates his power to deliver in verses 12 to 26. Here we're shown the power of what God can do so that we can behold the glory of who God is. These demonstrations of God's power start with creation. In verse 12, we have seas, the expanse of the heavens, the earth itself, and the mountains. All of these put us in our place. Have you ever stood before the ocean waves? Watch kids as they play on the beach and the waves roll in and they get upended. Remember last summer we were with some of our grandchildren at the beach. And one of my grandsons, who's just four, had never been to the beach before, and he was playing in the sand. And the waves came in, and he took one look at him, and he turned, and he took off running, like only a four-year-old can run. Had to wait till Dad could pick him up and carry him into the water. He was not going near that. He didn't know what that was. Even at four, he knew there was power there. The waves roll in, wave after wave, after wave. And what of a storm? What about the power of a rushing river or the force of a waterfall? When you go out at night and look in the night sky as the stars come into focus, do you ever feel small? What about this globe that we live on? We've traveled around it. So the text says we circle it. But who are we in light of it? And then there are mountains. Perhaps nothing reminds of us of our frailty and our smallness like mountains. I mean, we can build skyscrapers and we can fly at 36,000 feet. But when you stand before a snow-capped peak, it takes your breath away. Seas, sky, earth, mountains, all beautiful and glorious and yet foreboding and terrifying at the same time. And as great as these things are, they are nothing compared to God. He holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. Sees the terrified ancient mariners. Remember Jonah? Last month, sees terrified, experienced sailors. Seas and mountains, the universe, God weighs those mountains and scales, verse 12. 
These are all transcendent things to human experience. And yet God transcends all of them. God is more powerful than creation, than the great and terrifying forces of nature. And so the first thing we see is God's power. The prophet then appears to move from discussing God's omnipotence, his being all-powerful, to his omniscience, his being all-knowing. The topic shows us that God's knowledge goes hand-in-hand hand with God's power. Look at verses 13 and 14. And now God is demonstrating his power over false gods and idols. In the Babylonian uh, pantheon of gods, Marduk was the chief god, kind of like Zeus for the Greeks or Ra for the Egyptians. But Marduk's not the only god. There's other gods. And in the Babylonian understanding, uh, Marduk would hold counsel. He'd gather the gods together and he'd consult with them and hear their particular expertise before deciding what to do. Now look at what God says in verse 14. Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? These are all rhetorical questions. And they're all met with a resounding answer, no one. It's a clear declaration of the supremacy of the one true God over all the false gods. God is more powerful than all the false gods, all the false idols, all the false religious systems. <coughs> now, in the ancient world, common understanding was if, if one nation defeated another, and then that meant the superiority of the victorious nation's gods over the gods of the conquered nation. So this is a, uh, not a secular culture with a secular worldview. All these cultures are deeply religious. So it's not like Israel was religious and all the surrounding people were totally secular. They're all religious. There is no real secular culture in that day and time. <clears throat> Now, their religion was deeply flawed, but it was religious to the core. You think about it, all these people revered their idols. They worshiped false gods, often with an intensity, sacrificed children to false gods and idols. Think about how much you believe, those of you that are moms, to walk up to a furnace and place your baby in it? That's an intensity of worship that we can hardly understand. They believed what they were doing. They thought they were doing the right thing. It's easy for us to look at them and say, how horrible. They thought that's what they were supposed to do. They're deeply religious. So they think if Babylon beats Israel, Babylon's gods are bigger and better and stronger than Israel's gods. So did Marduk beat Yahweh? The Bible says not at all. In fact, Israel's defeat doesn't signal any weakness of Yahweh. You see, earlier in Isaiah, the prophet was quick to point out there's a totally different dynamic at work here that God had stayed as protective 
uh, hand so that Babylon would be his instrument in bringing judgment against his people. And why did God judge Israel? Because they'd broken his covenant. God promised them that if they kept the covenant, he would bless them in the land and prosper them. But if they broke the covenant, they would incur curses. So you have blessings and curses, the end of Deuteronomy. Obey me, you're blessed. Disobey me, you're cursed. And they disobeyed. They broke the covenant. So they're going to feel the hand of judgment. God didn't fail Israel. Israel disobeyed and rebelled. God wasn't asleep. He didn't blink. He didn't waver. Israel failed to keep the covenant. Consequently, Israel feels this harsh reality of judgment, which results in exile. Nevertheless, the question has to still linger in the minds of these exiled Israelites. Is God strong enough to deliver us from these Babylonian gods? It's a question they asked repeatedly throughout Old Testament history. It's why we have the book of Genesis. Because they got freed in Exodus. The, the Egyptian gods were the greatest of all gods. And their god freed them. And they came out and said, who is a god that can defeat the Egyptian gods? And Moses says, let me tell you in the beginning. Genesis was written to answer that question. Who is God? Who is this amazing, all-powerful, all-knowing God? And somehow Israel keeps forgetting him. And now we're hundreds and hundreds of years later and they've forgotten him again. And God shows up. Is God strong enough to deliver us from the clutches of the Babylonian gods? Absolutely. You don't have to change classes. Absolutely, because God is the only true God. Isaiah 40 lays that out. It says, God is greater than creation, than nature, than all the powers of the earth. God is greater than all the false gods, all the idols, the false religions. And now he turns to the nations. And it says, those collectively form but a drop in the bucket. All the nations have a sum total of nothing. Verse 17 all the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. It's like a zero with the rim kicked off. Think about it today. We cower before dictators and despots. The 20th century witnessed this full complement of tyrants who committed atrocities and genocide. And so far in the 21st century, oppressors serve as head of state, Rogue leaders threaten violence. And so we need to hear these words today. All the nations are as nothing before him. We need to be reminded of God's power over the nations. If all we see is what is in front of us, we can easily fall into despair and doubt. So we need spiritual sight. Again, the power of God dominates the nations as God brings them to nothing. The case has been made, God's glory has been declared, and in God's glory we find comfort. God's power is now demonstrated, and in God's power we find hope. 
And finally, we see that God's greatness is our strength. God's greatness is our strength. Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? We just sang these words. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no mighty increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And yet doubt remains. Verse 27, he's answering, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? The prophet anticipates the doubt. It's one thing to hear these grand statements regarding God's power, but then wonder, does God notice me? Will his omnipotence reach down to my day, my challenge, my fear, my doubt? First, it's amazing this question is even recorded. I think that's telling in and of itself. Because it's hard to live in between the promise and the fulfillment of that promise. And it's natural to ask, does God notice me? We usually don't admit that we ask such questions. Okay, you should have made it to the next class by now. Um, we usually don't admit that we ask these kinds of questions, and we rarely ask them out loud. But we do ask them. Does God notice me? And to answer it, Isaiah brings one final demonstration of God's power. Like a good storyteller, he saves the best for last. And the final demonstration of God's power is that God demonstrates his power in the lives of God demonstrates his power in the lives of his people. Ultimately, God not only demonstrates his power, but he delights to do so in the lives of his people. This is our confidence in God. He delights to save us, to help us, to strengthen us, and to comfort us. And in our desperate state, when we've reached our limits, when we're finally ready to see the one thing that we should have focused on all along, we see here at the end of Isaiah 40, first we see our weakness is on display, we're weary, we faint, and then God's strength is greater still. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. God's strength stands in clear contrast to human weakness, and we admit with Luther and his hymn, that our striving would be losing. And gently the prophet tells us to wait on God, for the Lord renews our strength. When the prophet says wait, he uses that word a lot in the book of Isaiah. 
He's telling us to stop, to pause, not to rely on ourselves or on our plans or on our schemes. Waiting uh, means to get out of the way and just stand back and wholly trust and rely upon God. And those who wait on the Lord are promised that God will renew their strength. And the prophet highlights and expands that promise. He uses three metaphors as uh, illustrations in verse 31. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall first, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah uses these three illustrations to demonstrate how fully God's strength renews us. And they drive home the point of God's power. Now, initially when you look at it, you think he's got it backwards. You know, we should reverse the order. It's kind of anticlimactic here. Because I'd rather fly like an eagle than run. And surely I'd rather soar through the air than walk. And yet Isaiah used walking as sort of the culminating illustration. And I think he got the order right. I think it's spot on. The soaring and the running and the walking are all metaphors. So let's carry them through because seldom do we need such bursts of strength to fly like an eagle. And occasionally we need to run. But we walk constantly. Walking is rather mundane. You might even use the word ordinary. And so it's in the ordinary that God meets us. God meets us in our everyday, boring, ordinary, mundane tasks and in the momentous occasions and everywhere in between. There's nothing we do that's too little and there's nothing we do that's too big for God to work in our lives and strengthen us. It's in the activities and events of our lives that God shows himself and proves himself able. And in all the activities and events, God is demonstrating his power in and through us. God delights to demonstrate his power in the lives of his people. Not just on the big events and not just on the great days, but in the everyday, ordinary, boring, mundane it's time to take the trash out again kind of day. And as we live between the promise and its fulfillment, we wait. And as we wait, we find our power in God. And so we can be confident. Is our situation as bad as Israel's was? As they sit at that campfire under a foreign oppressor with a promise of deliverance generations away. Most of the people around that campfire don't go back to Israel. Their grandchildren and great-grandchildren are the ones that go back to Israel. Have we developed the habit of claiming God's promise for our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren? Especially for those of you that don't have children yet as many of these people did. Remember, Daniel was a teenager when he was taken off. He used to be claiming these promises for future generations. It's a habit we've lost. Even so, Isaiah's audience is 
commanded to look to God, to be confident in God, that God is going to pick up the people of Israel and bring them home. And he says this is a word of comfort. And ultimately, God alone is worthy of our confidence. It's we who miss out when we fail to put our confidence in God. Martin Luther was right. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. R.C. Sproul once said that our biggest problem is we don't know who God is. And our second biggest problem is we don't know who we are. Isaiah is a good place to learn about God. We've only scratched the surface of who God is in Isaiah 40. He's omnipotent and omniscient. He's holy, just, righteous, and good. He's full of mercy and compassion, long-suffering, gracious, and kind. Isaiah is a good place to learn about God. Isaiah is also a good place to learn about Christ. It's also a good place to learn about Christ. There's a fulfillment here that doesn't come in Isaiah's day. And what Isaiah says causes us to look ahead. It's foreshadowing. It's no accident that all four gospel writers take these verses as a description of John the Baptist's ministry as the forerunner. When John began preparing the way for Jesus' entry into public ministry, he cried out, John 1.23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. And then, as if on cue, his cousin Jesus approaches, prompting John to declare, John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As Jesus goes about declaring the coming of the kingdom, he authenticates his claims through signs and wonders. He heals the sick, the blind, the lame, not just to demonstrate his power, but to signal a day when such things will be no more. When he restores lepers and raises the dead on his command, he shows the truth of Isaiah 4, 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When Jesus casts out demons, multiplies loaves and fishes and walks on water. He's showing how God's kingdom is coming to earth, how God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He is giving people a foretaste of the day when all that exists is God's kingdom because the new heavens and the new earth leave no room for pain and sorrow. Ultimately, the deliverance that Isaiah describes in chapter 40 owes everything to Christ. And one of the hardest verses in all scripture is found a few chapters later in Isaiah 53. You know why God ultimately fulfills his promise and demonstrates his power? It's because of Christ. Do you know why we can run and not grow weary and we can walk and not faint and we can soar like an eagle? Because there was a time when Christ could not walk. And he fainted under the weight of his cross. And he took upon himself our sin, our unrighteousness, our weakness, our frailty, our inability. Do you feel the weight of Isaiah 53.10? Hear those devastating words from the beginning of that verse. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. As we think of the beautiful words of Isaiah 40, 
we know they're true because of the horrific words of Isaiah 53. There is one who did faint for us. There is one who was crushed for us. And God in power raised him from the dead. The ultimate demonstration of the power of God is on the cross and at the empty tomb. Because of that demonstration of God's power on the cross and in the resurrection, we are his people. As Psalm 95 says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Isaiah 40 wants you to know this is our God in him and him alone we put our confidence. Does God notice me? The heart asks for God to give an account and his reply is his presence. His reply is his glory. His reply is his power. His reply is his greatness. God is his own answer. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We thank you for these words of Isaiah. We are people in exile who need to believe your promises, and you provide the fulfillment of those promises with your presence and by showing us your glory and your power and your greatness. We praise you that you are not like us, but that you are the mighty God. We praise you that in Christ you have come and entered into our weakness and sorrow and suffering and bore our sin and died our death and paid our debt. So let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Forgive us for looking everywhere but Christ to find the comfort, hope, and strength that we so urgently need in these dark days. Rivet our gaze on Christ. Help us to behold our God in this new year, for we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.